Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Okay, fashion designers, fashion design students, and home sewers, we have heard you. And for the last three seasons, we've gotten so many requests for this episode that we're going to do today. We couldn't even begin to list all of you who have submitted this listener request, but time is nigh, friends, and today is the day. Yes, because today we are finally going to explore the curiously captivating history of paper patterns, i.e. sewing patterns. And today's episode is in honor of Joy Spanabel and Marie, who was one of the world's leading experts on this subject. Her book, A History of Paper Patterns, The Home Dressmaking Fashion Revolution, is actually the basis and inspiration for our examination today. Very sadly, we lost Joy in September of 2018. So on this two-year anniversary of her passing, we wanted to pay tribute to her lifelong body of work on this topic. Joy was really a legend in our field. She had a master's degree in costume design. And for many years, she worked at the University of Rhode Island as a professor and chair of the theater department, where she also designed for something like 86 of the school's productions. I mean, it it was a lot. early 1990s, she also undertook this fascinating project to establish a pattern archive in order to preserve the history of commercial sewing patterns. So fast forward to three decades later and the Commercial Pattern Archive, which is located at the Special Collections at the Robert L. Carruthers Library at the University of Rhode Island, it now holds the largest collection of paper sewing patterns in the entire world. And when you say largest collection, you are not joking because this collection is home to more than 56,000 patterns in the collection's electronic database and 46,000 paper patterns. So this is no small feat at all. So passionate was Joy about this subject that she worked as the curator of the Pattern Archive right up until the time of her death at the age of 82. And Joy had already agreed to join us as a guest on Dress before her health took a turn. So while we are heartbroken that she is not with us here today in person, Joy, this one's for you. Yay. (laughs) So Kaz, I learned so much from Joy's book, not only about paper sewing patterns, but actually about some of the periodicals that we hold in special collections at FIT. And I think we're going to get into that here in a bit. But the very first thing that struck me is that the literature on pattern making dates all the way back to the 16th century. So in 1580, Juan del Sega, who was a Spanish tailor, published his Book of Practice of Tailoring, Measuring, and Marking Out. That is the English translation, of course. It was originally published in Spanish. But that text is believed to be one of, if not the oldest surviving treatise on pattern making from 1580. 
Yeah, I mean, that's just incredible. And we're not going to list here the copious number of volumes issued by French, German, and English tailors, which followed his publication during the 17th and 18th centuries. But let it suffice to say there were many (laughs) which detailed the writer's own philosophy and system of pattern making of which generally entailed the rock of eye method, which Mm -hmm. I had never heard of. Me Um, neither. (laughs) And this was basically free handing or free drafting a pattern of which you probably already had some knowledge about. Um, And you did this in chalk onto a substrate, all the while making on the fly adjustments, really based on the tailor's prior experience. And this was done for each individual client. So that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of know-how, basically. Yes. As one tailor put it, quote, I was put in the business in 1802. There was no such thing as a system of cutting in those days. The shape was produced by what was termed the rock of eye system. The eye being globular and a very slippery member, there was no certainty where it would rest. <laughs> so I guess what he's trying to get at here is that it wasn't exactly the most precise method. And this also gave me pause because this is certainly why, and we've talked about this on the show before, why so many tailors and fashion designers apprenticed with master practitioners from an extremely early age, you know, sometimes 10, 11, and 12. Because really up until the 19th century, this education, it was passed down by one-on-one training. And and so much so that, that most individual tailors treated their knowledge of patterns as a trade secret. They were kind of like their own personal cash that they knew about. And these would only be taught to their apprentices. And sometimes, this was also really fascinating, these patterns that, you know, belonged um, to a specific lineage of tailors, they referred to the patterns themselves as gods. And that's how important um, this, this individual knowledge was to the trade. So, so interesting. And then when you cut to the 19th century, pun intended, (laughs) (laughs) or not, maybe not intended, but I'm taking it as one. (laughs) Cut to the 19th century and two new drafting systems emerged. You have the proportional scale, which is, you know, in other words, scaling something up from a set pattern. And then you also have direct measurement, which relied on the individual's unique measurements rather than increasing at this set scale. So we have to remember that today's standard system of measurement, aka the inch, the centimeter, et cetera, largely were not used by tailors and dressmakers throughout the 18th century. Get this, this, I find this so fascinating. They used, instead of, you know, that standard system, which we're used to now, they used strips of fabric or parchment and they marked clients' measurements on them and then wrote their name on that measurement. So basically the tailor or dressmaker would have a measurement strip for, or strips, you know, multiple strips for each individual client. So, um, you know, they'd have one for your bust, April, one for your waist, and then your inseam, et cetera. And it was all marked out. I think a lot of times it was actually all marked on one strip. So basically, let's say Cassidy Zachary, on the strip, your bust measurement would be marked, your waist measurement would be marked, all of the measurements would be marked on your single Cassidy Zachary strip. Yeah, which that makes, makes more things, sense. Well, it, <laughs> but it also makes things a hell of a lot more confusing to us today. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, sometime around the 1820s, 
we do see standardized tape measures being used in the fashion trades. And an English tailor named Mr. Hearn may have been the very first to publish a trade publication that detailed the techniques of using tape measures, um, which he also very conveniently also sold. (laughs) So um, Hearn's rudiments of cutting with easy guide for the use of printed tape measure, you know, may have been one of the first in this type of business model where a publication directly promoting tailoring and pattern marking tools were created by and sold by the publisher. So this was one of my very big takeaways from doing this research cast and engaging with Joy's work because in our collection at FIT, we have a ton of oversized menswear plates, which I always knew were trade plates. They were produced and destined for the trade. They were not produced for the end user, the end consumer. The missing piece here that I didn't understand is that sometimes some of these were produced in order to sell patterns. So I knew that some of them had ties to textile manufacturers, like, hey guys, we're going to send you all these tailors, these giant plates that, you know, show new styles, buy our fabrics and make them up in these styles. But what I didn't know is that many times the patterns themselves were also or maybe even solely being marketed to other professionals working in the industry. When I realized this, it was like this whole other world of understanding opened up. Things made a lot more sense about some of the (laughs) objects that we have. Let's just say that. And are you talking about like those big menswear plates that have, and then they would probably have a little number, like four numbers on the bottom right, right? And that would indicate the pattern. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. And it was not only fashion plates which these companies produced and sent out to promote their pattern-making wares. More than a few actually started entire magazine titles, many of which ran for years with the sole purpose of promoting their patterns for sale. So a little bit about what you're talking about, April. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have Gentleman's Magazine of Fashion. You have Taylor's Magazine. You have Scott's Mirror of Fashion. You have Taylor and Cutter. All 19th century menswear trade publications which follow this model. By 1849, full-size menswear patterns were widely available. Sometimes one would accompany each issue of your subscription. Sometimes additional patterns, which were clearly detailed in the magazine, were available by mail order for an additional fee. Um, You know, quote, cut from the finest manila paper um, and declared one American publication. And this, my friends, is how one of the great stalwarts of the paper pattern industry came to be. Butterick was actually founded in the 1860s, and they launched their publication, The Taylor's Review, to market their tissue paper patterns to the menswear trade. And Emery notes that by the 1870s, The Taylor's Review issued 10 free patterns with every single issue. And it has to be noted here, Cass, that attitudes regarding patterns had shifted greatly from the 17th and 18th centuries in the 19th century, because what was one's own proprietary trade secret in terms of like patterns was now becoming increasingly available for sale on the mass market. And at the same time, patterns and systems for grading women's and children's wear were also being published, but in a bit of a different manner. So some were certainly marketed to the tailoring and dressmaking profession, while a whole slew of others were actually being published for free in the pages of ladies' magazines with mass circulations. And I know you have a lot of those in FIT's collection because I've looked through them. Um, So oftentimes at a miniature scale and without any accompanying directions, 
So, you know, looking at these patterns now is a bit mind boggling uh, as to exactly how one was supposed to use them. Um, Mm. But of course, we must remember that the publishers were counting on the fact that this great preponderance of their female readers were actually experienced seamstresses, which was highly likely at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if you're in an amateur, uh, most women at this time were far more experienced sewers than many of us today, I have to say. Um, Of course, not all of us. I know tons of our listeners would disagree with that. But um, regardless of class, needlework and sewing was part of a young girl's education. And many young girls were expected to make their own clothes and in the future to produce items of clothing for their own families. Yeah, so publishers basically were like, oh, they know what to do. There's no explanation necessary. Just print the shapes (laughs) of the pieces of the garment and let's move on. You know, and I cannot stress how small some of these little patterns were in these ladies' magazines of the 19th century. For instance, let's say it's a pattern for a young girl's dress and the entire thing would be housed within like a three inch by four inch square. And it was really <laughs> the shapes that they were conveying and, and, and the pieces like overlaid each other or they fit within each other within this three by four square. So, so it's confusing. not a plan of how they should be laid out to cut by <laughs> right. any means. It's just like a bunch of shapes. Yeah. <laughs> and as Emery explains, quote, the pattern pieces are only for those that make up the basic garments. No patterns are given for facings, pockets, linings, and so forth. One size only designated in some instances only by age. The assumption is anyone using patterns would know how to make the garments once they had the main shapes. It was presumed that seamstresses and home sewers had cutting and sewing skills, end quote. Not to mention the fact that um, they were also assuming that people creating these garments from these teeny, teeny little illustrations also had the knowledge of how to scale them up from something that in actuality was about the size of a jigsaw puzzle piece. So it's it's fascinating, you know. <laughs> and, and that being said, it's not to say that full-size patterns for women's garments didn't exist. They started to become available on the market sometime around 1836. And we have a whole slew, Cass, as you mentioned, of French fashion publications or ladies' magazines, um, including Journal des Demoiselles and Petit Courrier des Dames, which provided these really cool inserts that were bound into the magazine. And oftentimes they have full-size patterns for children's clothing. Um, There's also maybe like some um, embroidery suggestions on there, or maybe even like full-size women's garments that were very, very simple. One notable of these, which was an American publication, is actually Frank Leslie's Gazette of Fashion because they offered patterns designed by Madame Demarest, who was a great rival of the aforementioned Butterick. Yes, yes. Madame Demarest, or should we say Madame's Demarest? Plural. (laughs) Yeah. is an intriguing figure or figures. And as you know, April, there has already been a fair amount of scholarship on the Demarest Empire, which rose in part thanks to the expansion of the U.S. Postal Service. Emory actually explains that before this time, postal service deliveries were limited to personal letters. So other types of printed commercial items like paper patterns were not allowed to be sent via the U.S. Postal Service. When that changed in 1845, this whole new world of possibilities opened up. And seeing those possibilities paired with the fact that home sewing machines were now entering the marketplace, husband and wife team Margaret and William Jennings Demarest were some of, if not the first, to launch a commercial paper pattern business in the U.S. in the 1850s. 
And I just want to remark here that even though sewing machines were like entering the marketplace during the middle of the 19th century, they were largely prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. I think they could cost the upwards of like 3500 or 4000 the equivalent of 3500 or $4,000 today. It, it wasn't like they were like, you know, you could pop down to Walmart and buy one for like 100 150 bucks, you know? Yeah. So, so people are still sewing by hand largely in your house. Although as mm-hmm. these became, you know, the technology developed, they would obviously become less expensive, more accessible, and effectively revolutionize the way clothing was made in tandem with paper patterns. That's right. So getting to that second Madame Demarest, (laughs) it seems that when the first Madame Demarest, Margaret, she passed away, and then Ellen Louise Curtis, who was an employee of the Demarest, who apparently was responsible for designing the patterns themselves, she became the second Madame Demarest. And by 1865, not only did the Demarest Empire include multiple ladies' magazines with the underlying mission to promote Demarest patterns, it also included, get this, 150 retail locations across the United States and Canada. So, you could just kind of like stroll into these shops and peruse all of the Demarest pattern offerings. And um, you could also order Demarest patterns by mail. And if you wanted to pay a little extra, you could also have the patterns customized to your specific measurements. And, you know, those are the ones that were kind of like one size patterns. Um, many dressmakers and retail shops also offered those for sale just, just off the rack. So come on. Look what they were doing. No wonder it was an empire. They were basically like filling in the marketplace with like every little product offering that they could get out there. You know, it was, it's, it's really fascinating. That it was their, their whole business practice was quite ingenious. I think we should say too that this is obviously the time pre-ready to wear. Oh, yes. <laughs> so like making your own clothing or hiring a tailor or dressmaker to make your own clothing was the standard. We are on the tips, I guess, of the industrial revolution that'll change the way clothing is produced and manufactured, but not quite. So, you know, it's easy to see when you think of it in that context, why these retail locations would have been so coveted back then. Yeah. And also just want to note about the Demarest, they were also committed abolitionists and they did definitely hire women of color who worked right alongside their white colleagues in the Demarest workrooms. And this was smack dab during the middle of the American Civil War. So there's that. Yeah. um, And a few other notable things about the Demarests, they began offering standard size patterns in the 1870s. And also the fact that their patterns, they gave them names rather than that more typical numbering system that would be used by their and was used by their competitors like Butterick, who would enter the market in just a few years. Yeah. So basically Demarest and then like Butterick kind of followed quickly thereafter. As did another contender, McCall, which was launched by Scottish immigrant tailor James McCall in 1873. And again, we're going to see this same formula happening here again and again and again. He launched his own fashion publication to promote his (laughs) patterns. Um, His publication was called The Queen, illustrating McCall's bizarre glove fitting patterns, which is 
a supremely strange title for sure. And when I say bizarre, I don't mean like bizarre. I mean bazaar, like a marketplace. Um, and I think what was happening here was that McCall was trying to trick the reader into kind of thinking his magazine was in some way or another related to two other very popular magazines of the era. One which was called The Queen and the other one, of course, being Harper's Bazaar. So at this time, all of these pattern companies that we have just mentioned, they were creating paper patterns which featured this system of notches and holes. And these were used to indicate where the pieces were to join. And they didn't yet include additional text instructions on the the paper pattern pieces because it wasn't really until the 1920s that fully printed patterns, which featured text instructions, very slowly began to appear on the market. And an influential development came at the hands of Butterick during the 1870s. They began offering paper patterns in a range of standardized sizes, so which employed the proportional method. So while Demarest offered luxury custom measured patterns for an extra fee, most pattern companies provided their patterns in one size only and then depended on the maker's ability to scale up and customize the fit. Yes, and these niceties or lack thereof, um, came at a cost, right? So Butterick offered their patterns for about 60% less, as best as I can figure, than Demarest. And Demarest was really kind of catering, you know, to the upper classes because a single Demarest pattern, and I'm talking like a mid-range pattern at this time, would cost of about $40 today. That's expensive. Compared to what would be $10 today for a Butterick pattern at the same time. And then McCall's pattern perhaps would have cost $2. So we're seeing these paper patterns being marketed um, to kind of like different customers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, across different price points, essentially. And Demarest wasn't exactly the most expensive because there were also, of course, an entire paper pattern industry outside of the United States. We're largely talking about the United States here today. But certain French pattern companies who attributed their patterns to French couture houses of the era during the 19th century, they also offered custom-sized patterns for the individual, and they could run up to what would be $100 today, which is a lot. Wowza. So, um, all of this being said, Butterick's strategy specifically to cater to the middle class market was clearly a, a success because by the 1870s, they were selling approximately 1,500 patterns per day. <laughs> yeah. As business for these companies continued much in the same fashion during the 1880s, a new player entered the game in 1892 when Arthur Turner and Harry McVicker launched a little publication that some of us might recognize, (laughs) Vogue, Vogue magazine. (laughs) Right. Yep. That Vogue magazine. And at this time, I mean, we have to mention Vogue was actually not quite something we'd recognize today. It was more like a weekly society and lifestyle magazine, um, which featured fashion, but it was definitely not its main focus like it is today. But in 1899, the magazine began publishing one single size pattern per issue and was so successful in this endeavor that when Condé Nast purchased Vogue from Turner and McVicker in 1909, he immediately set up Vogue patterns. Nast had actually already partnered with Ladies Home Journal for several years prior to offer the paper and patterns offered by the Condé Nast owned company, which was called the Home Pattern Company. So he was actually already quite experienced in this trade. And as Emery notes, 
Under Nast, Vogue quadrupled its pattern offerings. Quote, by 1911, Vogue was issuing 200 patterns a year, most of which were of a fashionable rather than practical or utilitarian nature. And also, Mm -hmm. it's worth saying that Under Nast is when Vogue became the fashion magazine. Yes, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's also around the same time, 1910, 1911, where most companies now also created special envelopes to house their patterns. And this development allowed for more and more companies to offer more text directions pertaining to specific construction techniques. And um, I think there was a while back, Cass, we got a listener question about doing some history on the, the illustrators for uh, paper patterns. And I just want to let you know, I can't remember who it was, but we did look into that and I wasn't able to find anything. Not to say that it's not out there. So we might get to that um, at some point one day if we find more information. But we, we, we did get your listener request. So thank you. And of course, we're talking about the teens here. We, we have to acknowledge World War One, And during this time period, these pattern companies really kind of came to the aid of both the public and also in certain instances, the government. As Emery notes, quote, Betterick issued the official Yao woman's costume of the U.S. Navy. McCall's issued ladies' work suits, which were adopted by the U.S. government munitions workers. And many of the leading pattern companies of the time also offered patterns for Red Cross nurse uniforms, as well as the clothing needed by convalescing soldiers, which were created by volunteer seamstresses and then donated to, um, you know, all these medical uh, facilities that were taking care of the wounded soldiers um, when they returned home to the States. And then moving post-war, commercial pattern companies actually took a bit of a dip. Fewer and fewer American women, it appears, were making their own clothing. So to entice new customers, McCall's began offering its couturier patterns for the home sewer line. And these patterns were officially licensed for sale from the likes of people like Chanel, Lanvin. And oftentimes these envelopes were actually being printed in color. And, you know, this is because the company, I think, is betting on this luxury aspect in opening the purses or pocketbooks of seamstresses with couture aspirations. Yes. So your, your, your pattern itself is actually deluxe, deluxe, deluxe. <laughs> Another company that is well known to us today entered the marketplace during the 1920s. On the brink of the Great Depression in 1927, Simplicity also joined this group of businesses. And Emery notes, quote, there's a general perception that pattern companies prosper during the Depression due to the increase in home sewing. It is true that women were making more clothes for themselves and their families out of necessity. However, the pattern companies did not fare well, especially during the first half of the decade, end quote. And and when she says the decade, she, of course, means the 1930s. Yeah, during the Depression, the cheapest patterns on the market cost double the price of a loaf of bread. So forced to choose between feeding one's family and buying a new pattern, many women shared amongst each other or reused the same pattern again and again to save that expense. Uh, Butterick ran into serious financial trouble during the 20s and 30s and was actually forced to sell their publication, The Delineator, to the Hearst Publishing Empire Vogue, on the other hand, decided to go all in. This is when they launched a Hollywood line of patterns based on styles seen on the silver screen, as well as their Vogue couturier patterns, which were not licensed from or designed by couturiers, but, you know, they gave the overall feel of French fashions of the era. Yes. Because, I mean, French couturiers would have been highly, highly, as we know. They're very, very protective of their designs, especially during this period. 
They're going to get those dollars before you get, they're going to give you that design. Yeah. <laughs> so oddly, World War II ended up being the saving grace for some of these pattern companies that were in trouble because with clothing restrictions put in place um, in the U.S. In, and also in Britain to conserve resources for the war effort, these pattern companies launched new styles that kept within these guidelines. Um, in the U.S., at least, the government didn't mandate that they do this, but but I think that they were kind of trying to keep up with what was happening in the ready-to-wear trade in terms of, like, the shifting styles. So they also, some of these pattern companies, created niche pattern instructions for refashioning old garments into fresh new styles. Like a lady might take her husband's old suit and then refashion it into a suit for herself. And in 1942, Business Week reported that, quote, the sale of patterns increased 25% last year, more than double what it was in 1940, which is pretty staggering. Even more staggering is the fact that they estimated that, quote, 65 million dress patterns were sold in the U.S. in 1941 one for every woman and girl child in the entire country. Wow, that's a lot of patterns. <laughs> yeah, this is big business. Even when they were like not doing great, it's, it's still big business. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it really speaks to the pervasiveness of sewing machines in the home by the 1940s. So just, you know, 100 years after their introduction or so into the mass market. And as Emery writes, Singer Sewing Machine Company estimated that there were 25 million sewing machines in U.S. homes, almost 10 million more than telephones in the home at this time. Yes. And just as they did during World War I. Pattern companies, again, came to public service during the Second World War. Butterick offered patterns for various Red Cross uniforms. Simplicity created work coveralls for women in wartime factory jobs. And while less practical, but certainly nonetheless endearing, Butterick and McCall created doll size patterns for the American women's branches of the military, the wax and the waves, which is so cute. So... <laughs> So maybe these young girls were like starting to learn to sew and helping their mom make costumes for their dolls or the moms were just making them for them. And they also offered, again, doll-sized patterns of Red Cross uniforms. That's amazing. And something that, you know, these little girls could dream of being when they grew up possibly. So Mm -hmm. I love that. And while some American designers were hired during the war to create patterns for the big name pattern companies, they generally were not credited until the 1950s when two new kids on the block, Advance and Spada, entered the market with pattern lines specifically promoting the American designers who had already made a name for themselves in the retail space. And Spada, for instance, offered patterns for designs by people like Claire McCardle. Um, You also have Joe Copeland and Seal Chapman, Bill Blass and Donald Brooks, who would later join the lineup as well. And while these new upstarts advanced in Spada, carved out a market for themselves, of course, then we also have Butterick, McCall's Simplicity, and Vogue, who continue to rule the day at this time. Yes. So much so that apparently by the 1960s, it was like figuratively hard to skip a stone without running smack dab into a paper pattern during the (laughs) daily course of your life because they were now offered in department stores. And this is what really blew my mind. Grocery stores. Amory notes a report in Barron's in the early 1960s, which estimated that there were 45 million home sewers in the U.S. who, quote, averaged 27 garments per person per year. 
Further, four out of five teenage girls were making their own clothes, end quote. And why this blew my mind exactly was, as somebody who does not sew, this was actually quite inspirational to me that if, <laughs> if that many people doing this, I certainly think I can do it. And now I kind of want to learn. <laughs> you should. Um, I'll give you a lesson over Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> that means I have to buy a sewing machine. Thankfully, they're not $3,500. Exactly. Well, you would probably save a lot of money if you did start sewing, April, which was probably part of the reason why so many people were actually sewing at this time. With inflation on the rise during the 1960s, by 1971, Forbes actually published an article, which Emory cites at length. Um, But basically, in summation, inflation raised the price of a simple dress from what would be in today's dollars. So from $136 in 1961, it was raised by nearly 50% by 1971 to uh, $186, while a comparable dress could be made at home for $77 worth of material. So you could basically make your own dress at home and save more than half the money during this time. Yes. And the late 1960s also saw the introduction of new sizing standards, which were implemented by the Measurement Standard Committee of the pattern fashion industry. And this was done in an attempt to ameliorate the discrepancy between sizing on paper patterns and that compared to what was happening in ready-to-wear sizes that were being retailed in stores. So in theory, since the 1930s, the paper pattern industry had been using the same standard of measurements, which were set by the U.S. Bureau of Standards, but ready-to-wear manufacturers, not necessarily operating under those same standards, had kind of started to wander down this path of vanity sizing. So, when the commercial paper pattern sizing standards were revamped in 1967, what had been a Mrs., a.k.a. a junior size 14 in 1966, went from a 32 to a 36-inch bust, from a 26 to a 27-inch waist, and from a 35 to a 38-inch hips. So basically what's happening here is that this new standard, which was based on the current day ready-to-wear sizing, forced the paper pattern standards to become larger. And positive attitudes lingering from the late 60s and early 70s on DIY fashion had shifted to blatant consumerism for sport by the 1980s. And the 1980s were actually not kind to the paper pattern industry, let's just say. (laughs) Fewer and fewer people were making their own clothes. And I mean, this obviously goes hand in hand with the availability of ready-to-wear would be my guess as well, inexpensive ready-to-wear. But the pattern companies cultivated alliances, not with department and grocery stores as we've seen it prior, but now with fabric and crafting retail outlets, which is probably sounding a little more familiar to our listeners today. Yes, and let me tell you, does it sound familiar to me? Because Cass, my mom, was and still is a huge crafter, you know, from making and selling luxury mohair teddy bears to toll painting to quilting to cross-stitching, underwater basket weaving, you know. (laughs) Now she's quite literally a master knitter. Like, she's one of those people that can, like, make designs rise up from the surface of like a knitted knitted thing. I grew up in craft stores during the 1980s. (laughs) And this 
it was all so blase to me at the time because I was in craft stores so often for right. so long that really the only interesting thing I found to do to pass the time was I would wander over to the pattern section and I would look at all the quote-unquote designer patterns. So at this point, Butterick had bought Vogue's pattern division. So it was usually this Butterick produced Vogue patterns that I always kind of made a, a, a beeline for. And I'm talking, I was like seven or eight at the time. So I think maybe possibly I've always been a fashion historian. I just didn't know yet. (laughs) Uh, What about you? Do do either of your parents sew? Because we do recognize there are plenty of gentlemen out there that sew as well. Yes, my father does not sew, but my mother does. And my mother, you know, made all our Halloween costumes growing up. She did make some of our clothes. But I, I also remember being at places like Joann's and sitting down with those giant pattern books that you could just yes. go through. And yeah. it was always so fun and so inspiring to see, um, you know, all the things that you could make. So, yeah, I definitely spent my fair share of time there as well. And those big books, those the were like average. The patterns are called counter catalogs, and they were like the advertisements for the patterns, right? And then you would get the number, and then you would go over to the drawer, and then pull the drawer out, and then get the number of the pattern. To my knowledge, it's the exact same system today. Yes. (laughs) But um, back to the 1980s, one particularly interesting thing about the pattern industry during this time was the adoption of new technologies. So industry-wide, the switch from cut and punched patterns to printed patterns that had started in the 1920s, well, it really had ramped up in the 1950s. And by the 1980s, printed patterns were now the standard. So Printing also allowed for multiple sizes, usually three to be printed on the same size, you know, same sheet of tissue, which again, we recognize today you buy patterns and there's different sizes um, in the same pattern. And then you have the introduction of new computer technologies, which really helped quicken the pace of production industry, you know, across the spectrum. So as an article in Forbes noted, the time it took to create a new pattern and get it in the store was more than cut in half during the 1980s, from 10 weeks to four, thanks to computerized designs and new printing and distribution technologies. Quote, speed to market is important because pattern designs are typically knocked off from popular styles or licensed from hot designers like like Donna Ban and Ralph Lauren. Unless the pattern maker is quick, a dress can be on the remainder rack before the pattern is available in stores. And that's a quote from Forbes at this time. Yes. And Butterick in particular actually was able to double the output of some of its less expensive, easy to make pattern lines because there was a huge market for these. And they just kind of cranked them out as fast as they could, these best-selling pattern lines. And by the way, and that quote that Cass just read, when they say Donna Ban, I highly suspect that they meant Donna Karen. (laughs) That would make a little more sense. (laughs) Yeah. She was actually contributing designs to the Vogue Patterns American Designer Series in the late 1980s. So as we move into the 1990s, um, of special note to us fashion historians, our lovers of vintage fashion, is the launch of Vintage Vogue patterns in 1998, which adapted patterns from the 1940s to modern day sizing standards. And also, Butterick launched their Retro Butterick the following year in 1999. And speaking of fashion history, can we just talk about the fact that fashion designer Nolan Miller, who also happened to be the costume designer for the smash hit TV show Dynasty, did an entire line of Dynasty collection patterns. I know. 
So these patterns are so fabulous. On the pattern envelope, they feature Diane Carroll, Joan Collins, and Linda Evans, you know, modeling the ensemble that the pattern was taken from. And, you know, I, I, when I discovered this, I was like dying. They're all over eBay if you'd like to get your hands on some. I actually texted when I learned about this, one of my best friends who does drag, and I was like, OMG, we need to get you some dynasty dresses and suits made immediately. <laughs> um, and and this was not the only kind of like celebrity connected promotion that the pattern companies um, engaged in. They actually got some of the hottest A-list celebrities of the time to model for those counter catalogs that we were just talking about, Cass. People like a young teenage Brooke Shields modeling these giant white bouffant 80s blouses. Um, also actress Marlo Thomas and Sherry Balafonte Harper, model Christy Brinkley, the list goes on and on and on. Again, this is still big business. In order to hire some of these people to simply model the, the designs for the counter catalogs, this had to cost them a pretty penny. Oh, absolutely. However, <laughs> <laughs> yes. now that we've done this whole history of paper patterns, as we see when they have their ups, then they have their downs. So by the early 2000s, things were turning a bit meager again for the paper pattern industry. McCall actually ended up purchasing Butterick Vogue, which then merged three of the main players in the biz at this time. And while today you can still find Vogue working with contemporary designers like Badgley Mishka, Rachel Comey, Ralph Rucci, and Tracy Reese to offer their designs to the home sewer, many hobbyist sewers can also create their own patterns online. Companies like Taylor Nova, Free Sewing, and Pattern Lab allow customers to create patterns according to their own measurements and then download and print their patterns. Mm -hmm. It's very cool. I especially really liked Taylor Nova. Uh, I spent a little bit of time tinkering around on there a bit. It gives you a 3D model of yourself after you enter your measurements. Um, and then you can like try on garments and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I think I do need to learn how to sew, you know. I don't think it'd be that hard for me because let's face it, I would probably just be making caftans. <laughs> and maybe an occasional jumpsuit once I knew what I was doing. You know, it's not hard to get started, honestly. I mean, you do need a sewing machine or you can just sew by hand. I mean, people yeah. still do that. And there's an incredible costuming community out there that still does hand sewing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I recommend it. I It would be nice to pick up my sewing machine again too and get creative. I've been having fun actually lately upcycling garments or re, right. you know, bringing old garments into the new. So... Um, so, so cool. But I mean, I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the hands of the individuals who designed, cut, and sewed all of the hundreds, if not thousands of pattern pieces residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Again, so much respect to Joyce Benable Emery for her body of work on this topic and also Betty Williams, whose work Joy expanded upon. Our episode today was a brief overview and summary of Joy's book, A History of the Paper Pattern Industry, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2014. It is still in print, so you can get your hands on a hard copy if you wish, and it also comes as a Kindle book. 
And another book recommendation if you are into this topic, and this one actually deals in a bit more detail in terms of the history of patterns and drafting systems. This book is called Cutting a Fashionable Fit. It's by Claudia Kidwell. It was published in 1979, and this is out of print, but you can actually download a PDF of it for free from the Smithsonian Research Online website, which is so cool. And of course, please check out the Commercial Pattern Archive at the University of Rhode Island's website, where you can reach more than 50,000 images of patterns dating back to 1847. I'm sure we'll be posting some on Instagram as well. And we will, of course, put the link in the episode description. Yes, you do. I should, word of warning, you do have to sign up with the Commercial Pattern Archive and get a login. And I'm not sure what their status is these days in terms of operating during COVID, but it is an incredible resource at your fingertips and we wanted to share it with you all. We hope that you will join us on Thursday for our mini-sode when we answer listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest happenings in fashion and fashion history. If you would like to submit a question for a future Fashion History Mystery episode, you can do so by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or send us a DM on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We'll catch you Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.